This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey, everybody. It's Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and I'm here today with Cody Mosier, who is a second-time guest. Cody is a, uh, I don't know, evolutionary biologist, behavioral ecologist, cultural evolutionist, evolutionary anthropologist. I don't know like how many different uh, types of things. He was actually, um, I think he was a physical biological anthropologist when I first met him many, many years ago when he was at A&M, um, so he's worn a lot of hats. Um, he is a hat wearer as well, so um, that's apropos. And he has a paper out. And so I'm talking to Cody partly. But Cody is a, uh, you know, he's a PhD student in Paul Maldino's lab at uh, UC Merced. And Paul, I actually know from back in the Davis days, uh, kind of casually, uh, some of uh, the Miguel Rith Labs meetings on cultural evolution. And Paul's got a new book out on agent-based modeling. Um, actually reading the book right now. I haven't finished it. After I finish it, I will probably, uh, just for you listeners out there, try to do an interview with Paul. If you guys want to get, uh, you know, listen to something nerdy about cultural evolution, we're going to dig deep. Uh, you know that I like to do that. Um, this, Cody has a paper out with Paul uh, in the Royal Society. Um, wait, which one, which Royal Society is this? Is this B? Yeah, this is Proc B. Okay, Royal Society B, so it's biology. And the uh, paper title is Innovation Facilitating Networks Create Inequality. Um, and that that title seems, in a way, it's kind of like straightforward and generic, but the paper itself is pretty interesting. Um, there's stuff about agent-based agent modeling, uh, experiments, network theory. Uh, so um, it's open access. You can read it, but uh, not going to lie, um, it is uh, pretty dense and uh, it's pretty complicated. Um, I, you know, I, I have like more than a trivial familiarity with this field, but it was difficult for me to follow. So um, I guess um, the way I want to like, get into it is uh, just say like, you know, this is measuring uh, potential ways that innovation occurs in groups, uh, in different groups and in different group structures. And there's some non, I say not intuitive stuff. And that's, that's what you do science for. Well, except for psychology. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, you do science to figure out non-intuitive results, um, figure out non-intuitive dynamics uh, about the world out there uh, that you just don't know ahead of time, right? And so this is showing that innovation isn't simply like returns on population scale. So uh, if you think about a big population should just have more innovations, you know, have some linear scaling to effect to it. Um, but that's not exactly how it works. That's the result. You see it in the abstract. But um, they studied uh, something with something called the potions task, and you know, I just I told I told um, Cody before we got on that okay, like I didn't I've never done the potions task, so uh, just reading about it is not really doing it for me. And so, Cody, uh, before we get into the results and why they're interesting, um, tell us what the potions task is. Describe it. Uh, make it real to the listener. Yeah, totally. 
Um, and thanks for the introduction. So, so the paper itself is an agent-based model based off of an experiment uh, called the potions task. And so this task was uh, invented as an experiment to be done in person with people by Maxime Derricks and Robert Boyd, um, I think in 2016 or so. And basically what it was, was imagine a world where you have a set of like six potions. Let's say you're making some kind of medicine or some kind of, you know, ingredient to do some kind of magic or something. Um, And what you can do is you can take the different sets of potions and combine them to make new potions. And so in the, in the experiment, what happens is uh, people start off with six potions. Um, they can combine them to get new potions. And when they get those new potions, they can then take those and combine them with the older ones to make more and more subsequent potions. Um, what was significant about the experiment and the way that they comprised this task um, is that there was an initial bias towards a certain set of potions that you would make. Um, so with that initial set of six ingredients, you could have combined them in two different ways to get two different uh, subsequent potions. And so you would find something, you would keep on using that in subsequent combinations, but you would never go back to that original set and try and figure out what else was there. And so in this experiment by Maxime Derricks and uh, Robert Boyd, uh, what they did was they manipulated social groups of in-person people. So basically they had two groups. One group was a group of six people all sitting together, mixing these potions, and they could see exactly what their partners had done. And then they had another group where it was two groups of three, uh, where in those three groups, they could see what their immediate partner had done, uh, but then they could spy on the other groups every once in a while. And what they found is that it was only in that kind of broken up group that had three groups of two, uh, where people were able to basically find the top potion of each of the two trajectories. There were two initial trajectories of potions. Basically, you could imagine them as like two different tech ladders that you have to climb up if you've ever played the game Civilization, for example. Um, Two different tech ladders. And when you get to the top of these tech ladders, you could combine them. And they found that for these fully connected groups where everyone could see what everyone else was doing, uh, basically, none of those fully connected groups were able to find uh, the ultimate potions. Um, but over half of the partially connected groups, the ones where you had three groups of two people that could kind of spy on each other, um, were able to figure out uh, the final potion, the task, and basically beat the game. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the shifting balance uh, and civil rights ideas. And so, you know, because I tend to think of biological evolution whenever I see this cultural evolution stuff. And so I'm thinking, okay, so you have a massive population and a massive panmictic population that's like random mating. Selection is operating in these additive independent effects and it's reaching these optimum. And so Sewell Wright had this not totally coherent, well-realized idea, but that's very metaphorically attractive, that if you have broken up populations, smaller populations, drift and epistatic effects and other things will allow them to cross the, um, you know, barriers in the adaptive landscape and hit like these higher optimums. And uh, what do you think about just that resonance for me? Like, is that, is that off base? That's, that's not even off base. That's just totally true. So um, in our case, this goes back to uh, basically a bunch of other findings found in the collective problem solving literature, where if you kind of break groups up, if you lower their rates of transmission, Um, If you make agents uh, less likely to change their opinion, what you do is you increase the so-called 
transient diversity of the population, that is, the population's ability to entertain multiple theories. So the philosopher of science, Kevin Zolman, in 2007, wrote a paper basically saying that this transient diversity thing allows people to find um, better outcomes in science. And so recently, Paul and I wrote a paper um, entitled Maintaining Transient Diversity is a General Principle for Collective Problem Solving. And in it, we make this direct comparison to uh, Wright's shifting balance theory. Um, because if you think about it, this kind of transient diversity argument is a structural version of um, R.A. Fisher's fundamental theorem, right? That basically the amount of variance that you have in the population is uh, proportional to the strength of selection. And so in all these different collective problem-solving models from this weird potions test we have... Oh, the, oh, the reverse, the reverse, right? The strength of selection is proportional to the variance? No? No, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you said, you said, the way. <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway, I just, just wanted to get the causality right there. No, 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 you're right. Yeah. So the kind of true. It, well, I mean, you're, you're not totally wrong because if you have really strong selection, the variance is exhausted, right? But anyway, I just, sorry, I just, I know someone in the comments might be like, well, actually. No, 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 that's totally right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was kind of going full of thought. Yeah, but basically, the idea here is that you want more variance um, in order to get more selection. Um, and this is the case in these collective problem-solving models, that the more variance of opinions that you have, the better that populations tend to do. Now, the problem is, is that in this paper, the way we wrote it, it's like, oh, just add more variance, more variance. That's always going to be the way that you improve things. Just, But if you sit around and you look in the real world, um, it's clear that we tend to talk to each other. We're not totally siloed out. I mean, in academia, we kind of are, but not totally. Um and so the question is, is like, why is it that these kinds of structures that seem to facilitate innovation in these agent-based models and mathematical models um, are not always present in the real world? And one of the thoughts that I had, I said, well, you know, the thing is, is that we're looking at the payoffs for the group, um, but we're not really paying attention to the payoffs for the individuals in the group. So what we did was we followed a series of other modelers, um, starting with Andreo uh, Miliano, who took this potions task, turned it into an agent-based model and basically ran it on hunter-gatherer networks, which was pretty neat. Um, and we ran it on a bunch of different simulated networks that we came up with. Um, and also some real-world networks, including the hunter-gatherer networks. And uh, I made a collaboration network of my department at UC Merced. Uh, turns out we actually kick ass at this thing. Um, and what I looked into was I looked into, uh, in addition to group performance, how performance weighed out on the individuals. Okay. Um, so we've been talking about individuals and models and whatnot. Um, I have been meaning to ask you at some point, um, let's just do it now early on, agent-based models. Uh, I know Paul's got a whole, you know, um, you know, I've done some agent-based, like back when I was, you know, doing population biology at Davis, UC Davis, Pop.io. It was like 10 years ago, so maybe it's changed now. I mean, they, but, um, you know, there was a whole section on agent-based modeling. We would like, you know, code it up in R and stuff like that. Um, the guy who, who taught us was a graduate student. He he left academia. He's working in quantitative finance. But anyway, uh, uh, give us the TLDR uh, on agent-based modeling. What is this? Why is this so cool? I'm assuming it's gotten much further in the last decade than it was. It felt like a little bit... Um, very early and embryonic when I was working on it, when I was doing the problem sets in 2012. Yeah, yeah. So so it seems like the field's gone through like some uh, dips and leaps. And right now it's definitely a huge leap. A lot of people are um, really paying attention to agent-based modeling. But pretty much what an agent-based model is, is it's a computer simulation that you could think of it like, you know, SimCity or something like that, right? You're basically specifying the agents, 
and the kinds of behaviors that they can have with each other when they interact. Um, so what you do is you build in a number of minimal assumptions, just like a mathematical model, um, and basically just simulate it out. So in situations where, for example, um, you can't get an analytic answer like you might in many mathematical models, you might want to use an agent-based model to just simulate it out um, and try to find the limits across a wide range of parameters. And so like in our case, what we did was we said, okay, um, agents basically interact with another agent who they're connected with in a network. Um, they combine one of the potions that they have at random um, with some kind of preference for a novel potion rather than an older potion. Uh, if they make a right combination, they get a new potion and they can give it to their neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. And from there, you can you know, alter some of the parameters like the network structure, uh, the propensity of the agents to share with one another and all those different things to see how those influence the outcomes on the population level. Okay, um, so um, <laughs> my daughter is learning Python right now. Whoa. And um, the uh, the teacher, um, I, you know, Cody, she's 11. Okay, guys, she's 11. But um, the teacher used the word parameter all the time. And I realized, you know, look, I know that a lot of the listeners out there, you guys are nerds, you know what a parameter is. But, I mean, you just, like, threw down a lot of technical terminology, Cody. Could you tell them what a parameter is and, like, why that matters for agent-based modeling? Yeah, sure. A parameter is some value which you can tweak in the model. Um, so, for example, one of the things we have is the propensity to share. So an agent, if it finds a new potion, um, it can share it with other agents. If that parameter is set to one, um, then that means that it's always going to give this new potion to its neighbors. If it's set to 0.5, it'll give it to about half of their neighbors. If it's set to zero, they just never share. So the parameters are things in the model that you can tweak to kind of find these critical behaviors um, in terms of your outcomes. You know, and your description of agent-based bundling, it's great. Um, it's what I thought. Uh, I'm assuming that a lot of the reasons that people weren't using and still don't use agent-based modeling because, I mean, it's basically a simulation method, right? Yeah. Um, and it's like simulating reality. It's simulating, indiv it's simulating individuals or agents, operators um, in aggregate that are interacting. Yeah. I'm assuming that it's computation that's limiting the use. Otherwise, they would just be everywhere. No, exactly. And so actually, you find a lot of times in agent-based modeling literature, there's kind of, you know, two different approaches to it. Um, you have the simple minimal models approach. And I think that that arises from a kind of philosophy of science perspective that says, you know, what is it that we can get out of minimal assumptions? Um, and those tend to be not so computationally complex like this uh, potions model. If anyone ever wants to run this thing, I have all the code on GitHub. Um, it's a lot of fun to watch as a simulation. Um, pretty simple as well to implement. You just do it in Python. Uh, where basically what you're doing is you make minimal assumptions and try to get the most complex behaviors possible. On the other hand, there's another one, <laughs> uh, another perspective where basically people try to build the most complex models uh, to try and fit the data as much as possible. So I've seen like agent-based models where people are like, oh, uh, I simulated the economy of Germany for the last 10 years to figure out what COVID impacts would do. And something like that, you know, I can't even imagine trying to run that thing. I mean, one run must take like a month <laughs> uh, versus the things for me, yeah. you know, they take about 30 seconds. Well, you, you said philosophy of science. I think one of the issues that you're alluding to here is, you know, preference for parsimony, Occam's razor. I mean, the simplest models, yeah. the simplest explanations of nature are usually just preferred. Although um, that is a heuristic. Yeah. Um, they're not necessarily, there's no like 
there's no law, um, you know, from on high that says the simplest models are the true models. It's just they tend to be, um, I think, partly just because, I mean, for complicated models, there's just so many models that you're going to explore that if the complicated model is the correct model, to figure it out is going to be really hard. Yeah. So you might as well just start with the simple models and hope that the simple model is really the explanation, right? No, that's precisely it. Yeah, if you start with the simple model, you know, you kind of squint your eyes and on a fuzzy level, you're like, well, I guess things behave like that. Um, but it leads a lot more open in terms of, you know, like you were saying, in the case where if you build a super complex model, you better be pretty sure that what you're saying is precisely what's going on in the real world. All right. So uh, can you tell them what a connected caveman network is? <laughs> oh, man. So this is my favorite network. So this is a this was created by uh, Duncan Watts, I think, in like the 1990s. And so a connected caveman network is where you have these mini networks that are fully connected. So let's say that would be like six individuals and they're all talking to each other. Um, what the connected caveman structure does is it severs one of those links. So two of the people are no longer talking to each other and instead creates a link to another caveman network that's doing the same thing. And so what this allows you to do is it just maximizes basically the modularity of the network. Um, so these groups are basically little individual compact subunits that are talking to each other really, really deeply and only just barely talking to the groups around them. Um, we tested... Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, talk about what you tested. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we kind of tested this one in the model because... Uh, we figured one of the things that helps people in this task is being able to subdivide the information in some way. So if you recall, I said in the potions task, there's basically two trajectories. We'll call one an A trajectory, which is, you know, a tech tree set by your initial set of potions that you look at, and a B trajectory. And basically what you want to do is you want to get to the top potion in both trajectories and combine them. Now, the agents are pretty dumb. Everything they're doing is totally probabilistic. Um, they're just basically saying, oh, this one looks good. Combine it with this one with some probability. Um, they don't know, hey, uh, I'm looking at this. Uh, you need to be looking at something different. And so what the structure does is it allows this group, uh, this work to basically be divided um, into groups. It creates biases in different pockets. And so what this connected caveman does is it basically amplifies these biases within each of these little groups. We call them cliques. Um, it allows the computation of the task to be subdivided into individual components. Okay. And so, um, you know, and like right now I'm like looking at your discussion because, you know, in this paper, obviously it sums up and, you know, it's a great paper, obviously, uh, you know, not, but I'm just telling you guys, uh, there's a lot, I mean, I don't know, like there's a lot that went into it, right? Like I'm sure, you know, Cody, uh, uh, there's a lot of like, you know, this is, this is not uh simple, like, you know, thinking about how culture works, like in your armchair or anything like that. Like, you know, there's some computing and coding and these technical terms. So um, you found that populations of all sizes and click compositions perform similar per capita when yeah. the over overall number of comp combinations are taken into account. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So one of the things that you would assume, and this is something that uh, we've known for a really, really long time since uh Joe Henrik first started working on the problem of innovation um, is that larger populations tend to innovate better and faster than smaller populations. So uh, he had this model that's now known as the Tasmania model. It's super famous. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember reading the Tasmania model literally, I think, in 2005. I remember reading that. 
Yeah, so back, when came, yeah, way younger than you, bro. It's yeah. like back in the day. Yeah, so 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 that model was brilliant. And basically, what Joe found is that um, larger populations tend to have more variants. So going back to this idea of transient diversity, and so therefore they're able to both uh, maintain complex innovations for longer, um, but also continue to grow their complexity. Uh, smaller populations are not as good. But something that we did was we looked, um, because a lot of times in these models, what they do is they uh, run the model for basically all the agents, um, and they call that one time step. So basically a network that has five agents um, in one step will basically make five combinations. A network that has 50 agents in one step will make 50 combinations. Okay, when we correct for that, when we basically say, okay, what's just the raw overall number of combinations made? Basically, population size is precisely the same um, across network compositions. So that means that for a population of 100 individuals, it takes basically as much work as a population of 10 individuals uh, to do the same kind of discovery in this task, which was pretty shocking to me because something that happens, especially in uh, random networks. So random network is one that you manipulate and you give it some assigned connectivity. So a connectivity of 0.5 means that half of the connections in the network that could exist do exist. Um, with a larger network at 0.5, uh, that means that individuals tend to have more neighbors um, because there's more possible connections to be made. And at 10, uh, they tend to have far less. Nevertheless, they seem to require the same amount of work uh, when going through this task, this seems to have something to do with the fact that, um, basically, uh, the larger networks are transmitting information faster and can make more possible numbers of connections in one time step than another. Uh, but, it, but it was a pretty shocking finding for me that pretty much all population sizes take about the same amount of time when you just do the raw number of combinations. Yeah. Bigger is not always better, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, so in a sense it is, but if you just control for time in kind of one way, it, it, it's, it pretty much all equals out. Mm -hmm. Wait, what about, um, so random link alteration yeah. um, as a form of in-group competition? Like, talk about what, what relevance is that? Yeah, so going back to the original lab study, uh, where basically what they did was they had it so that... Uh, People that, you know, you, you split the group into like six groups or into three groups, six individuals. So it's groups of two. And every once in a while, they could spy on the other groups and see what they're doing. So in a lot of the modeling literature, this is like random link alteration. What you're doing is you're introducing uh, new information uh, basically by altering the structure of the network. You could think of this also like in terms of migration. Um, a lot of studies kind of use that term to say, well, what if you just take individuals from one group and you move them into another group? So what we did was we just had it so that individuals after a certain amount of time steps had the chance to randomly find a different connection. It was not targeted. So they didn't look for like, let's say the best performing person, but they looked for a random person. And what we found was that there's basically no difference. Um, which is kind of in line with what happens in a lot of the literature, which is that either people seem to find it makes a difference. Some people don't. There's a good study on um, uh, the show Doctor Who, uh, where they found that the showrunners would randomly move the uh, uh, writing staff around to different parts of the season. Um, and they found that when they did the most movement like that, uh, they tended to have the highest TV ratings. But 
Wait, because this makes them more creative or? Yeah, basically. And also the the people who run the Broadway show Cats know this as well, that basically they notice that if the uh, actors are getting a little too comfortable with each other, they'll start moving them around to different show times. Um, basically, they think that keeping them on edge uh, seems to increase their productivity. But here we found it didn't really make much of a difference. I mean, you know, there's something with that, uh, you know, back when I was like a spectator sports fan, you know, uh, especially NBA, NFL, whatever, baseball, they do these trades. And, and why do they do the trades? A lot of t- I mean, the, by definition, a lot of the times the trades are equivalent players. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, what's going on here? And they're just like, well, there could be a new combination. And, you know, all of a sudden there could be new synergies and stuff like you just never know. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and basically, like, if you think about it, going back to. Uh, kind of, as you were saying, with Wright's landscape, it's like if you took an individual who's on one peak, one adaptive peak, and you tried to move them to another one, um, there's several reasons why maybe we didn't find it in our model, specifically the fact that the link alteration is just completely random. Um, but I think there are some manipulations you can make uh, to basically make it work a lot, of, uh, a little bit better, but we, we, we didn't do those specific manipulations. So um, your agents, they're all the same, right? Yeah, they they have no differences in terms of their propensity to innovate or to diffuse information or anything like that. It's as if you just had a bunch of clones and all that matters is where they're sitting in the network at any given time. So this is like Homo economicus type stuff, right? Like they're they're all they're all interchangeable. It's just contingency of where they're positioned and in the sequence of interactions. But um there is I think like some of them are more productive. There's genius effects. Um so talk about that. Yeah, so the major finding in the paper is that as innovation increases in these networks, so does the inequality. Okay, inequality of what, you might be asking. So it's the inequality of solutions that the agents have found. And so basically all of these measures, such as decreasing the population connectivity, uh, making agents less likely to share, or um, basically increasing population size, also increases the inequality in the networks, Um, meaning that some individuals basically have way better solutions than others. And so, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know, there's basically Isaac Newton's sitting in this network um, because as you tend to increase the productivity, you just have these super performers. Um, And those are kind of the people that we're finding are kind of driving the inequality. What we find is that where they sit in the network, they tend to occupy uh, positions that have what we call high betweenness centrality. Okay, what does that mean? In network science, it means that let's say you're trying to get from you to the furthest person from you in the network. And everyone's trying to do that. They're trying to get to the furthest person from them. What individual does everyone have to pass through the most in order to get to that other person? That person would have the highest betweenness centrality. And so we found that these kind of really central people uh, tend to be boosting the inequality in the network by basically being the highest performers as well. So you might think of them as basically bridging uh, disparate parts of the information networks um, uh, within these different network structures and therefore driving the inequality up because they're able to kind of synthesize the information um, that the disparate parts of the network have. I mean, it it sounds like you're making the argument for multidisciplinary researchers, but... No, exactly. And, and, you know, some economists of science talk about these as...